On today's podcast, we have two great guests. Kim Taylor Thompson, a professor of clinical law at NYU School of Law, is an expert on criminal law and juvenile justice policy and founder of the criminal justice program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Her research and her teaching focus on the intersections between race, gender, and criminal law in the United States. And she spent 10 years as a public defender in the District of Columbia, including three years as the office's director. We also have Professor Anthony Thompson, professor of clinical law at NYU School of Law. Professor Thompson is the founding faculty director of the Center on Race, Inequality, and the Law. He has also founded NYU's Community Defense and Reentry Clinic, the first law school course in the country to focus on offender reentry, focusing on both client services and policy advocacy. Prior to coming to NYU, Professor Thompson served for nine years as a public defender in Northern California. This week, Professor Taylor Thompson and Professor Thompson answer a deceptively simple question. Why are Black Lives Matter and its advocacy goals gaining momentum now? In a wide-ranging conversation, the professors touch on racial biases in policing and education, the coronavirus pandemic, the movement to defund the police, and concrete steps that can be taken to address systemic racism. We hope you find the conversation as enlightening as we did. This is Kim Taylor Thompson. I'm a professor of law at NYU School of Law. I teach and write about race and youth justice, and I serve as chair of the Equal Justice Initiative. Um, I am joined today by Professor Anthony Thompson, who is the founding faculty director of NYU Center on Race, Inequality, and the Law. He also is a professor of law at NYU School of Law. He teaches and writes about issues of race, leadership, and justice. And both of us practice for a decade as public defenders. Um, so with that, um, Tony, uh, we've seen unarmed black men and women killed by police before. What's different this time? Well, let me, before I get to my comments, let me say that uh, how proud I am of the students of the Journal of Law, Legislation and Public Policy in this moment to step up and want to put forward a conversation about race, law, and American justice, I think, is critically important. So I, I applaud them. You know, I, I think that we've seen over decades um, a number of unarmed black men and women killed by the police. I think what's different this time are a few things. I think first, we come from uh, off of a period of time where we were in a pandemic. So everyone was in some form of lockdown. And where others might change the channel or do something different, um, basically the nation and the world were um, exposed to the George Floyd murder over and over and over again. And I think that there was a piece there. I think you want to couple with that the fact that just a month before, Ahmaud Arbery had been um, chased and killed not by a police officer, but by folks who I think were drawn by his race uh, to his conduct. And then in between those two killings, you had the Central Park incident where uh, Ms. Cooper called the police and um, inaccurately and, and illegally, perhaps, um, said that he she was being threatened by an African-American man um, right just before the killing of George Floyd. So I think the combination of people not being able to tune out or change the channel or avoid being uh, exposed to it was really coupled with um, the energy that had built up in the country. 
And so for the first time you saw in communities that were not particularly diverse, calls for police reform. You saw from sectors of the community that we might not often hear from, um, chance of defund the police. So I, I think that, that what you saw was the nation say no more. You know, the, the, the pending question is, um, now that the protests have reduced in number, although they're still going on, you wouldn't know that necessarily from the popular media. Um, the question is, how long will the calls for change and reform happen? But I think that's really what was different. Um, what did you see different? I mean, how did you see it? Yeah, so I saw uh, many of the same things that you did. And I think that um, your two points about um, the fact that this was happening during the, the um, pandemic and the lockdown and that people had to watch, not just black Americans, but everybody was watching and, and people were bored with the sameness of their days. And so they were glued to the TV and actually saw what was going on. So they experienced things and particularly white America experienced things that um, they're typically not um, encountering personally. They're typically immunized by skin privilege and by um, other kinds of privileges. And so don't encounter um, violence um, in the same ways that black folks um, routinely experience it. So I think this was a, a, an awakening for uh, a lot of the, not just the United States, but the world. But the other thing that struck me about this, and I think um, struck a chord in the country and in the world, was the casualness of this violence. Um, you saw um, Derek Chauvin kneel on George Floyd's neck um, and for you know almost nine minutes. And the entire time he had his hand in his pocket as though this was just normal, it was reflexive, it was routine. And the casualness of that violence was stunning. Um, and, and I think that that caught people's attention. And um, it, as you said, provoked people to step out and even during the middle of a pande pandemic um, to hit the streets and to rise up against what they were seeing as this normalized um, violence against our communities. So um, I think that was different. Um, and, and I think frankly, the, the protesters um, were saying, we're just not gonna let this turn into um, um, you know, a hashtag where we say wonderful things and sad things about this and then move on to business as usual. They just said, nope, we're going to stop. We're going to look at this. This country can stop because of COVID. This country needs to stop because of this. And um, I think that's what happened. You know, there, there are two things that are interesting to me. You and I look at these incidents from through a legal lens and through a racial justice lens. But it's interesting to me, the, the political discourse has changed, right? So we've politicized our ability to protest. So you have some who call the protests riots and you have others who call them protests. And you also have now for the first time in our history, um, a preventive response. Let me give you an example. We just learned about the grand jury in Kentucky, um, not indicting any of the officers in the killing of Breonna Taylor. What was interesting to me was the mayor before the, the indictment or lack of indictment was released declared a state of emergency. Um, you know, ask for all these other law enforcement resources. It is a new response to protests. And when we look at the lack of indictment, what do you think we should take away from that? So, yeah, yeah the, the, uh, the fact that the grand jury did not return an indictment against any of the officers who fired um, uh, and, and killed um, Breonna Taylor was stunning and it stunned the world, I think. Um, and what it said to me was that 
um, and actually it demonstrated in um, plain ways how we have two systems of justice in this country. You'll remember that police officers were shot and injured during protests in Louisville um, last week. And charges against the man who shot those police officers happened within days. Um, it, it didn't take seven months and a grand jury to come up with charges against that person. So it can operate when it wants to. But what we saw was that when there's a black woman um, who has been killed, um, uh, this, the system of justice doesn't operate quite the same way. So we had a grand jury that returned no indictment against any of the police officers who shot and killed Breonna Taylor. And the attorney general actually indicated that this was a clear case of self-defense, but it's anything but clear cut. Um, the officers entered the house um, with a no-knock warrant. Um, Breonna Taylor's husband, excuse me, boyfriend um, reacted as anybody would to intruders coming into your house. He um, um, called out to them and then he fired a shot, one shot. And the officers then fire over 30 shots blindly into an apartment. How that's not negligent at a minimum, reckless or even worse, I don't understand. And how you could actually say that that's a clear case of self-defense makes no sense to me. So we emerge from, I think, that lack of a, an indictment with, a, again, a clear indication and a clear message that the system of justice doesn't work quite the same way if there's a, a person of color who is the victim. I, you know, I think that the grand jury, this has been a great wake-up call in the same way that Derek Chauvin's treatment of George Floyd was a wake-up call for the country. Grand juries have been both a sword and a shield for prosecutors. So in jurisdictions where you have a large presumption that you will have non-diverse grand jurors, it serves as a shield for the prosecutor not to make a direct file against law enforcement. So if we look at Staten Island, if we look at Ferguson, those grand jury um, submissions were made where the prosecutors had an absolute ability to make a direct file against the police officers, but knew they weren't going to return an indictment. There's an old saying that people who are watching this are probably too young to know, but a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich. The, the truth is, if you wanted to get an indictment in those cases, you could. I think as a policy change, we need to do a few things. I think state by state, we need to review grand jury proceedings and policy. As a matter of course, all grand jury minutes should be released post-indictment or lack of true bill. I think that in some states, that's state legislation. In some states, that's simply an administrative function of the prosecutor's office. Who, and by and large, we have a lack of transparency and accountability on the part of prosecutors. The big challenge, the next challenge for racial justice is not only or not simply rethinking police and police conduct. It's thinking about how the criminal legal system works interchangeably, right? So it's the role of the prosecutor. It's the role of the judge who has listened to the grand jury. Um, I think that, there need, that prosecutors, by and large, have avoided the type of scrutiny that the police have been subjected to based on Floyd. And if you look at decisions, let's take Floyd, for example. When Amy Klobuchar was a U.S. attorney um, in Minnesota, she repeatedly refused to file federal charges against the Minneapolis police officers that were involved in misconduct and excessive force. Obviously, that came back to haunt her as an elected official. But the notion that we have not subjected prosecutors' offices nationally to a higher degree of transparency and accountability, I think, speaks volumes to how we need to reassess and rethink the process of the grand jury. 
it's a great point, and I think we're going to we may see some of that um, playing out in the Brianna Taylor case since the judge has just ordered um, in the last day or so. Um, the release of the grand jury transcripts. And so we'll get a chance to see what actually was presented, what wasn't presented, um, and, and perhaps be able to assess, um, you know, exactly how this um, uh, lack of a, an indictment occurred. But I think you're right. I think that, you know, that the grand jury has been a, a black box and needs to be um, opened up. We need to take a look at what prosecutors are actually doing. You're absolutely right. If they want an indictment, they can get one. Um, it's not hard to do that, but and so the fact that we didn't come out of this with an indictment seems really um, uh, uh, questionable and um, makes me, you wonder about the integrity of the process that was engaged here. Another thing about the process, what we see nationally when we look at regular criminal jurors is that the processes that we use to summon jurors, um, DMV records and other um, tax documents are often ill-suited to have the most diverse juries possible. I think we need to examine, if, if we're gonna examine the grand jury process, one of the things that we need to do as a matter of policy is examine the way we summon uh, potential jurors for the grand jury process. I, I think that there needs to be a focus on a more diverse jury pool as there needs to be in criminal juries. There also needs to be a focus on the process and transparency of the grand jury process. I'm completely in sync that there needs to be some confidentiality while the process is going on. That makes absolute sense to me. However, once the process is finished, there's no justification other than political insulation for the prosecutor not to have those minutes released and not to have the, the, the processes much more transparent. So, so let me come back. I, I know we've wandered a bit in terms of the criminal legal system, but let me just go right back to police reform and then I want to go back out again. So is police reform possible? And if it is, what does it look like? Um, you know, how, how do we get there? What do you think? So I think it's, it's funny. I've had um, literally hundreds of emails uh, in my capacity as the co-director of the Center on Race here around this notion of defund the police. Um, I, I think that when we talk about defund the police, everyone has a different meaning for it, right? Some people talk about the billion dollar budgets in big cities like Los Angeles and New York, um, and the fact that some of that is used to purchase military equipment in many jurisdictions. Some people say when you dial 911, you should have access to other services, not only the police, because everyone knows if the only instrument you have, the only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so sending police in armed, um, sending police in girded for battle, um, presents problems, but we really have to look, when we think about police reform, at the history of policing. Policing began with the slave patrols, um, kind of returning freed slaves or slaves had to escape back into slavery. It moved from there and evolved into a feeder for convict labor, where there were no longer slaves on plantations in the South. They used prisoners in, in, the, in their capacity as um, free labor to continue to feed the pipeline of the economy of the South based on slavery. Finally, um, as we move through Jim Crow and into the current period, it served to provide racial boundaries, if you will. It's why we get the barbecue Becky and the permit Patty and, and the new characterization of the Karen, the Central Park Karen. It's because people are calling the police when they believe that the police will come and intervene and protect racialized boundaries. And so for me, the conversation about police reform starts in three places. It starts with the citizens. It starts with our population saying, we want the police to serve another role. We, we tend to have the police, if we think about it, 
if you think about the social ills that exist, we've criminalized poverty, right? So we use the police to deal with our homeless problem. We deal with the police to deal with mental health and drug addiction. We deal with the police to deal with um, any range of social problems that are actually probably better treated without the added cost and intervention of law enforcement. So it, it's, it begins with the citizenry. Then it moves to the elected officials. City councils, mayors have to commit to a fundamental change in how we think about policing. This has very little to do with funding, although obviously funding is implicated, but this also has to do with the purposes with which we appoint police chiefs and their commitment to racial justice and equality. And then finally, it goes to police culture. One of the most dangerous institutions in America is the police union. Um, police unions have become racist, anti-immigrant, and anti-low-income people, um, and, and essentially serve very little purpose beyond defending whatever conduct police officers get involved in. Now, when you look at other law enforcement organizations, the Guardians of Justice, 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement, um, Latino uh, La Raza um, Law Enforcement Organizations, they serve a different community purpose. So I think one of the things that you have to do is you have to change police culture. You have to commit to say to police unions, for you to bargain, for you to be a negotiating unit with the city, you have to have accountability, not only to your line officers, but to the community in which we operate, in which we work. That is a fundamental transformation of their role. So I think if we have done the public education and dealt with the citizenry, I think if we have a commitment on the part of our law enforcement officials, and in cities like Los Angeles and New Orleans, where there is currently a heated race for district attorney in both of those cities, one of the factors, the platforms that the, the citizens need to demand from candidates running for prosecutor is that you'll think differently about your relationship with the police and that you will prosecute police where appropriate and investigate police where necessary. And finally, I think that in order to appoint a police chief, that chief must commit to changing culture where it's necessary but to look where there's discipline that's involved, whether the civilian review board or whether there's some other oversight, they must commit to transparency of process and accountability of their officers. So, it, sorry I'm, about that long-winded response to your short question. That's all right. I um, I'm I'm going to add just a couple of points because um, you, you it was so comprehensive. There's not much left to say, but um, you know, you touched on something that I I just want to emphasize. Um, one of the things that we need to think about when we talk about police reform is not tinkering at the edges and thinking about what are the small things that we can do to kind of make this right because this isn't about a few bad apples that are engaging in this conduct this is as you say about the culture of policing so we need to fundamentally rethink how we police where we police whom we police what are our goals what is it that we're trying to do and if we think about um, the fact that um, what we're trying to do is make communities safe there isn't a single person on this planet who would say, well, the way to make a uh, community safe is to have a police officer on every corner, a jail on every other corner. That doesn't make communities safe. What makes communities safe is having investments in those communities, making sure that people have options and alternatives, they have jobs, they have good education, they have employment opportunities. That's what makes communities safe. Go to any suburb and you can see a safe community. I was going to push on you. I think that there are some people in America who have met officer friendly. Yeah. And those people would say more officers are better. People's interaction with law enforcement is fundamentally different by race. I know you know this because you write about it. 
Right. And, it, you know, the, the experience of justice, the experience of law enforcement does differ. It diverges sharply based on race. When black folks are engaging with police officers, the engagement is, is often more injurious, more demeaning, more um, um, harmful. And it is not meet with officer friendly. And this is going to be a fine encounter. This is an encounter that could end up like George Floyd, could end up like Breonna Taylor and every single person of color, no matter where you are on the socioeconomic scale or any, where you are in any community, has that real fear because that is, that is possible. But let me just say this. One of the things that I, I think we need to recognize is that the, the policing system is not broken. You and I talk about this all the time, that it is not um, that somehow something has gone wrong. It is working according to its design. Um, as you pointed out, um, you know, every system um, produces the outcomes it is designed to produce. So if we have racialized violence, that's because this system was set up in a way to patrol racial boundaries, to control um, racially, to actually make sure that we police in ways that result in this way. That, you know, a lot of um, uh, folks in, in this country are quite comfortable saying, look, you police over there however you want to police. As long as that doesn't come into my neighborhood, I don't care. And we are being complicit in a, in a, in a violent, aggressive style of policing that uses um, war equipment that has a, a, a culture of us against them, you know, views the police force as an occupying force in communities, that has to change. And so simply saying, you know, we'll put some cameras on people or we will train differently doesn't get at the fundamental issues in culture that need to be addressed. Let me, let me just add, from a policy standpoint, as far as legislation, um, the current debate about the United States Supreme Court has convinced me beyond a reasonable doubt that our courts are so politicized that some of the fundamental change that we need to engage can't happen. And so that raises the question, where do we go? And when I look at qualified immunity as a fundamental necessity of change to really reform how police do their work and how the law is protecting individuals, we need to change qualified immunity at the state level. And I, I call for law schools and journals like our current journal, Legislation and Public Policy, to hold forums and symposia around changes at the state level. So you have states like Colorado who are beginning because of the horrendous activity in Aurora to think about that. But where you have states like California where there is a super majority, a Democratic majority in the legislature, and there's been some pretty fundamental criminal justice reform, I think you have to convene legislators from every state to say, what, how will you change qualified immunity in your state? And if you won't, what is your justification, given what we've seen nationally, to not make some fundamental changes to the way that we litigate those issues? So I think one of the fundamental policy implications of this conversation and of what we're seeing nationally is a need at the state level and state houses to reform, if not completely repeal, qualified immunity. I think that's a great point. And, and I want to go back to your defunding point. Um, you know, what we saw right after um, a lot of the uprisings over the summer were, was um, uh, jurisdictions saying, okay, let's just cut budgets of police departments and shift it someplace else. And that's not what we mean by defunding. When, when you, you, we definitely believe that uh, police departments 
are over bloated in in terms of their funding and so there is room to take money from them and as you were pointing out you don't need to call police for everything if somebody falls asleep in a drive through in wendy's you do not need to call the police and yet that's what we do and we see the results and so what we need to do is really rethink where those funds are going and they need to be invested in other parts of the community that actually help communities but we also need to look at the places that we're putting those investments we need to invest in schools, but schools are not race free or racism free. So we need to look at how those institutions are operating as well. We need to invest in social services and public health and mental health services. But those institutions are race have systemic racism as fundamentally as the policing system. And so unless we are willing to really do the hard work of looking at all these systems and unpacking the various ways that each of these systems batters people of color, we will not see any meaningful change. So Kim, let me ask you, you, you raised a great point when you raised schools. And, and I think that um, like the grand jury, uh, juvenile justice proceedings are often behind closed doors. You're a national expert on juvenile justice. And what I wanna know is, and I'm curious about, and we're getting some calls at the Center on Race here at NYU. Um, is this a moment for youth justice? I mean, we had, you were involved in all the MacArthur committees and commissions that looked at, um, provided the data that looked at Graham and that looked at the cases that both overruled the death penalty for children and life without possibility of parole. But to me, it seems like there may be a moment here for us to look at the racialized nature of youth justice as well. What are you seeing? Yeah, so um, it, it's a great question and we're seeing um, uh, a couple of things happen. In a time of COVID where people, kids were being released, actually um, a lot of people were being released from prisons and jails, not just children, but children in particular were being released because of the, the potential threat of this virus. What we were finding was that children of color were being released at lower rates. They were still coming into the system at higher rates. And so even as the system is shrinking, we're seeing this racial exceptionalism take place, that kids of color are still seen as you know, more predatory, more dangerous, more in need of formal supervision. So the brain science information that you were referring to is hugely important because it actually gives um, a biological explanation for the behavior that we typically see among adolescents. Kids behave like kids. They are impulsive. They're impetuous. They don't think about long-term consequences. Um, they are influenced by their peers. And that's because a part of your brain, the, the prefrontal cortex, isn't fully formed yet. And so that's where all of your judgment is and your executive functions. And they develop as you get into your mid to late 20s. But we treat kids as though they are fully formed adults and, and, and hold them accountable for what's going on. So what we saw during this past couple of months was more of the same. Uh, we saw in Harvey, Louisiana, a fourth grade kid who was doing, um, taking a test remotely and having a remote teaching um, in his classroom. And um, he ends up getting suspended for school because the teacher thought that she saw um, him handle what she thought was a rifle. It turns out it was a BB gun that was in his room. He shares a room with a, his kid brother. His kid brother had knocked over the BB gun. He picked it up to put it um, someplace safe. He ends up being brought to, uh, before uh, school authorities and essentially um, faced expulsion um, because he had violated classroom rules 
that said that you can't bring a gun to a classroom. He wasn't in school, he was in his home. But we are willing to expand our, our control, willing to expand and, and look at um, children's behavior in a much more criminal, through a criminal lens. And so what ended up happening was he was suspended for, for five days from school and that will haunt him for the rest of his life. We saw a, another situation, Grace, who was 15 years old, who um, was on probation and um, uh, she was one of the conditions of probation was that she was supposed to go to school and do her homework. And like every other adolescent during this period, she was getting bored with what seeing um, class on, on the screen and she wasn't doing her homework and she wasn't getting up on time. And the judge decided to lock her up uh, on a probation violation for doing what every other adolescent is doing. But because she's under the supervision of the juvenile justice system, a judge could intervene and say, this is in, the best, in your best interest, I'm gonna lock you up during COVID. These are things that we need to begin to unpack and recognize as, as um, ripple effects of our inability to address issues of race um, throughout um, um, every system that touches us. So let me ask you a question. Uh, when I look at our graduates, for example, I look at the wonderful Candace Jones, who's the president of the Public Welfare Foundation. When she was the commissioner of justice, or juvenile justice for the state of Illinois, it became her commitment to close juvenile facilities. But it's very rare that you find a juvenile justice commissioner willing to do that. What do you think we should be doing? What is the next line of legislative and policy change to shine a light on the racial disparities within the youth justice system? Where do you think we should go from here? So, so I actually think that um, you know, making sure that we hold commissioners' feet to the fire, given the brain science and given what we understand to be the racial dynamics in play, is important. And you can do that through media attention to this. Um, the story I was just telling you about the 15-year-old Grace, the reason why a judge, an appellate judge, ultimately let her out of, of confinement was because there was so much social media attention to this. So I think that there's power in um, you know, shining a light on things that otherwise would not be seen um, as clearly. Um, and then I think that we actually do need to look at the collateral consequences that are engaged when a young person is brought into the criminal justice system, how that might have impact on um, their ability to have their family in public housing, and um, that it can have a ripple effect. Um, our colleague Deborah Archer writes um, eloquently about um, some of these um, hidden consequences of, um, uh, you know, people being in, brought into the, the criminal justice system that it expands even into housing and it expands to everyday life um, in ways that we are not imagining. So I think that there needs to be more attention to that. We use social media, we use technology to have to shine a light on these decisions that heretofore have been done behind closed doors. Well, I'm gonna let that be the last word. Thank you for that, Tony, and thank you for joining me in the conversation. Um, this, we need to make sure that we um, begin to really think about this moment, not as just something that happened over the course of the summer of 2020, but that we take um, note of what's happening and use this as some momentum to begin to make some real change and real reform as we look forward to um, creating um, an opportunity for a reckoning on race and a more just system. Thank you. Thank you.